everybody. My name is Colin Clancy and today I will be interviewing Pat Burke as part of the St. Colmas podcast. Pat Burke has enjoyed many years over in Europe and is Ireland's first and only ever player to play in the NBA. He played with the Phoenix Suns and the Orlando Magic. I'd like you to find somewhere comfortable and relax and enjoy the St. Colmas podcast. Thank you. How are you, Pat? Doing well. Uh, my family's doing well. Uh, appreciate that's, that's good. That's good to hear. Just first of all, I'd just like to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast to talk with us. It's a great no, honor. No worries at all. Uh, how's coronavirus hitting you over there in Orlando? Uh, it's Florida's unique uh, through uh, all the other states. It's a little bit more, um, for lack of better words, a little more of a cowboy land. So there's a lot of a lot of chaos that occurs with you know with the masks and wearing them and not wearing them um it's a it's a challenging time but uh you know i think that uh, there's a lot of people that are very respectful of others space and safety and there's other people that are just you know really approaching the world in a very individualistic style yeah of course and as the nba bubble was over in orlando how did you feel that went uh i think they did well I think it's uh, interesting inside of the business side of sports that the show must go on. Uh, you know, the uh, the NBA is such a, a large machine that it uh, it has to produce not only for the fan base, but it has to produce for a lot of the sponsors and that uh, the entertainment value. So. Um, I have a number of friends who are on the inside of that with coaching and agents and front office people. And they were just telling me how they were really brainstorming when the pandemic first started of how could they put together something that was safe. Uh, I, I was watching the Pelicans and Bulls game last night and the Pelicans came from a 19 point deficit to only be two points down. If there was fans there, do you think that maybe they could have went on and won this? Um, I, I think in a, in a general sense, the fans do uh, create a, almost a, an X factor or a, um, maybe an unmeasured variable to games, um, you know, like high energy points uh, when those, you know, when the crowd is getting involved, it does have an effect. You know, obviously, if you look at people's home and away records, they're different. Uh, as far as winning percentage. So I would say that, uh, you know, in any case, um, you know, the audience or the fan base does play a huge part of it. Um, and I think that this this year or this season, you know, with the continuation of coming out of the bubble, the players have to motivate themselves. Um, uh, you know, as you asked before about the bubble, one of the things that I, I don't, this is just a tangent, one of the things I don't appreciate about the NBA's opportunity to to mimic what they did before is I, I, I don't like the the pumped in audience uh, over the audio you know the, you know there's somebody on the button there when someone shoots a free throw and it sounds like it's a 20,000 uh, it's a bit delayed they're all a bit delayed it is a bit delayed but it's almost like when you watch kids shows and they have the canned laughter you know they're trying to tell you what to cheer yeah, for yeah yeah I know it sounds a bit fake yeah. So are you saying you'd like it without the NBA fans, or? Yeah. Well, no, no. I, I, like? I, I, I like the NBA fans. It's just when the NBA fans are not there, it's yeah, the fake noises. Yeah, it's the fake. Yeah. And of course, like you would have played in a lot of games where it was packed out arenas, 
and a lot of games where there was hardly anybody in the stadium at all. When you were playing, do you think that if there was packed out arenas, did they, they help you a lot? Yeah, yeah, it sure yeah. did. And I also experienced moments going into an away arena or hall and, you know, having the experience of the pressure of the away fans, you know, putting in so much energy that it affects you, you know, because they're, they're obviously they're not cheering for you. They're, they're coming against you and you do, you do feel that energy as well. Actually, Pat, what team do you support? Um, you know, I've, I kind of sway back and forth. I watch, uh, I say my favorite point to, to break into attention. My favorite point in a season is, is the off season when they're making all the trades and changes and new contract deals, because I, I like the idea of the new, the new look of the team, the psychology of the locker room, how players are, are going to mix and the chemistry of character. So one of the teams that I think that uh, has a lot of character, I like Miami right now with, uh, you know, Jimmy Butler and Tyler Hero. Um, I think that's a great team to watch. Uh, can we talk about your time in Ireland? You probably don't remember much about your life in Ireland when you were younger. And can I ask, why did your family move over to America? Um, I think it was, you know, it's more of opportunity, work opportunity. My parents, uh, I'm the youngest of six. So my parents uh, were actually both out um, visiting family and uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and they met at a, a social event. I think it was an Irish dance or something that was out by one of the Irish cultural clubs in Cleveland at the time. Um, and so when they went back to Ireland, they uh, stayed in contact and met, met each other again, and they got married, <laughs> moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, at that time, they had the, the, our, my three oldest uh, siblings. Um, and then they moved back to Ireland again. And then they had the three youngest. And I was the youngest of the six. And then after that, when I was four years old, we moved back. So at that time, there was a, a lot of, uh, you know, I'd say moving around because things weren't as steady as they would have liked. Um, but I don't, I don't remember it like you were sharing, you know, I was only four years old. So my older siblings, they all remember, you know, the move and coming over. But, uh, my, my first memories are the ones of, the, of our first house, uh, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Have you ever gone back to Ireland? Yeah, many times. Yeah. I still have, uh, plenty of, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles who live there. My brother, he lives there with his family. So I've been back quite a bit, you know, I played, uh, with the Irish national team uh, for a while. And since then, I've been back doing a, a couple of different things with uh, um, the governing body of uh, Basketball Ireland. I know you played ice hockey when you were younger because your cousin played it. But can you tell us a bit about how you got into sports at a young age? Yeah. So, you know, that story was, uh, you know, I'd say going into a new country, my family was, you know, experiencing a new culture and, you know, with my dad working and, and, and things like this, you know, it's very rare. I'd say that we went outside the lines of our culture. So I'd say that the, the menu um, at dinner time stayed pretty much the same as Ireland, as Ireland and my mom was used to and my dad was used to. So when my aunt came into our kitchen, uh, when I was around seven or eight and started to talk about my cousin playing ice hockey, there was, you know, a bit of a, I don't want to call it an uproar, but there was a bit of a surprise from everybody 
in the room at the time. Like, what would we be doing, you know, playing ice hockey or what do we know about ice hockey? And so that introduction was a little bold, a little trailblazing at the time. And so I went out and, you know, just, you know, was not uh, somebody who went into sports like that, just uh, understanding, you know, everything that comes with it, with concepts of life skills of, you know, leadership, communication, respect, focus, all of those wonderful things that come with that opportunity. So I hit the ice, just, you know, falling and flopping around. And, you know, over time, you know, when you're, you keep going back and you keep meeting that adversity, you know, you make a choice. You either put the work in and you keep doing it and overcome it, or, you know, you sit down and you say, you know, to the reality of this is not fun and you quit. And that was not in me. I think my parents, you know, raised six kids that uh, true to Irish spirit, we, you know, I just kept getting up, kept moving faster, kept working as hard as I could and, you know, continued to play that sport for eight years. Did your parents have any understanding of American sports? Uh, my dad early on uh, enjoyed American football. Uh, my mom, uh, when we were younger, she played a bit of racquetball, <laughs> but uh, yeah, my dad still stayed true to Irish sports. He, um, he owned a, a fairly large, uh, landscaping company in Cleveland and uh, a lot of Irish guys would come out and they'd work for him so he uh, he had put together an Irish football team a Gaelic football team that's pretty cool the guys yeah and uh, you know he mimicked the Mayo colors and uh, it was his coaching experience teaching them and a lot of the a lot of the Americans that worked on my dad's crew they, they gave it a go too <laughs> they were probably a lot like me on that ice. You know, they didn't really know what to do, but they kept having fun. You know, I think that again, is that's another part of the, you know, the Irish culture is, is keeping it inclusive, uh, you know, really uh, praising people for the little strides that they advance in to keep them coming back. And, you know, over time, I think, you know, they, they traveled around that area between, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, New York and uh, Ohio quite a bit playing did you ever join them? Uh, I was only, a, I think I was only about 12 or 13 at the time. So it's funny when you're, when you're isolated like that, you don't know if what you're watching is really the uh, apex of Gaelic football. So, yeah. so you're, you're sitting there watching and you try to mimic it. And geez, I could have been complete crap myself, you know, trying to pick up the ball and move and, you know, and work work the ball around. So I did, I did try it a couple of times just, you know, on the sidelines, but again, there would have been, there would have been nobody in there with any real talent to come over and give you a little, a few pointers. When you started playing high school basketball and in your high school in your sophomore year, you were a six and lanky. Can I say uncoordinated guy who yeah. couldn't really shoot and just had height. How did you turn that into NBA standard? Uh, it, it has a lot to do with leadership. You know, I think uh, the, not to get too deep, but the psychology of looking to improve on something takes uh, more than just one individual. So uh, to, to go back a little further, my first actual introduction to the sport was in Cleveland, Ohio. You know, I was six, seven uncoordinated, you know, you filled it out perfectly. You know, here's a young, here's a young man who just transfers everything from ice hockey over into basketball. So, so the concepts are there, you know, hardworking, you know, consistency, discipline, teamwork, communication, like we said before, but the leadership in the room 
was one that uh, wasn't creating praise on small achievement. There was an expectation. Um, and I think that that's uh, something that when two people meet and they're looking to you know, work forward on something or not looking to work forward, you have what I think is, uh, is kind of a, a distinct agenda. So that, that first coach was telling me all the time who I was never going to be, what I couldn't do, what I couldn't achieve. And what was I going to tell him? He's wrong. I mean, it's, it's like you're sitting there and you're trying to do something, but you're not being taught anything. So it, it was, um, it wasn't fun. And it, it was, it was, it was totally different than what I went through in, in the ice hockey initial experience. So my family moved to Florida and I met a new coach. And in my mind, I was totally finished with the sport of basketball because it was something that uh, I kept, you know, going into that arena and that hall, going into that gymnasium and the same experience kept happening. You know, somebody just kept telling me that, you know, pretty much you're worthless and you can't do this. So the first day of school with the, down in Florida, the new coach, the new leader inside the room, he, he, he created an approach that uh, was was completely different than that first coach. And the distinction was this. On one end, you have someone who's autocratic and telling you something with an agenda. And maybe a little bit of his ego was, I can't win with you. But on my new experience, my new coach, the agenda wasn't to win. The agenda was to take care of the young men that he's working with and to help them improve on what they're looking to improve upon. So in just that slight little way of describing that, he came up to me and... Uh, he asked me, you know, what I did I want to go shoot in the gym? In my mind, I said, I'm not playing basketball. He told me back, I, well, I didn't say, you know, you were going to play basketball. I just said, you want to go shoot some hoops? And so I went and, and in my mind, I was already ready to exit the, the building as soon as we walked in. And so we shot for a while and um, he just started asking me thought provoking questions. And I hadn't experienced anything like that in my life. You know, someone asked me, you know, what, what do you want to do with sports and what would you like to achieve? And many of those answers uh, come out what I think is one of the most innocent and honest and uh, true to form leadership that kids display all the time is when they come up with the honest answer, I don't know. And he was okay with that until we meet those moments where I did have an idea or I was motivated to actually be brave enough to say something. It was okay with, I don't know. And uh, so he taught me very quickly um, how to set goals and how to create um, benchmarks in, in understanding if you're getting closer to them. So in a way, again, it's not to get too deep. He wasn't teaching me a right or wrong way to play. He wasn't telling me a right or wrong way of his opinion on things. He was asking me, if, am I effective or ineffective in my approach to these things? And when the answer or response would be, you know, a no or a yes, or I'm getting closer, then we would both sit and talk about other ways of doing things, other ways to practice, other ways to approach, you know, working with the ball in the post. And that became a very um, uh, effective way of, uh, how would I say, um, creating an honest relationship. There was no, pardon my friends, there was no bullshit in that relationship. There was just an opportunity to talk about, well, how would we do this? How would we do that? And uh, I was young and I, I didn't know a lot of the answers and he was okay with that. And over time, I just kept putting the work in. I kept putting the work in. And he would ask me every now and then, has anybody been saying anything to you? And I'd say, yeah, you know, people are telling me they're noticing the difference. 
And he said, well, what does that make you think? And I would say, I think that the training is working. And we would start to double down, whether we would, you know, go twice on a weekend or, you know, two times on a Saturday or two times on a Sunday or, you know, playing with things. That's where I, I started to work on it. But then again, is that was high school. You know, I had the size, you know, at my final, my final senior year, I left the school at 6'11". But then again, as you go to the next arena, which was college, and you're, again, a small fish now in a bigger pond. Did you get much college offers? Uh, yeah, I had about five, some smaller schools. Um, but, uh, you know, at that time, because I was I was kind of an unknown entity in that area, I just moved there two years prior. So I was fortunate that, you know, I, I was on the map for some schools. And how did you fit in studying and basketball into your day? Um, once it became very fun, uh, once it became something that I was excelling in, I should say that first, once it, once I started excelling at it, it became fun. So you, I thought about it all the time, you know, and so the balance there is, you know, you're working as hard as you can, you know, you're working, putting all your energy into whether it's the weight room or getting shots or practice or just going with your friends to play. And then there's the reality that without the academics, you're going nowhere. So I did have to balance that in a way in which, you know, you had to be smart about things, you know, and that's another thing that my uh, coach, Coach Marty Waters, that, that coach that I had in high school would talk to me about is, you know, how are you doing with this? And, you know, what, what are the standards for getting into college with your grades? So I had to do a lot of research into it. So that motivated me to, to realize that, uh, you know, you weren't just going to get there on athletics. And uh, that's where, you know, to answer your question, I just balanced it in a way in which I think most kids do in school. You know, you, you, you understand your work week. You understand what's being asked of you, getting the work done. And if, you know, if you aren't at times, you realize you got to, you know, pull back the reins on some of the other extracurricular activities that you're doing and make sure that that uh, becomes a big part of your life. Even when you were in college, did you think that you could make it to the NBA? Uh, my first year, no. Uh, my first year, I showed up and I was naive enough to think because I was 6'11 that I was going to be the starting center uh, for the team. And the starting center was 6'4. His name was Aaron Swinson, wow. one of the most athletic human beings I've ever been introduced to. He's a good friend of mine now. And, and uh, he probably dunked on me four or five times every practice. I couldn't do anything with him. And that was humbling. And, uh, you know, you start to question, did I make the right decision? All those other schools, would I have been a better fit? You know, and you see a lot of this today in sports where kids are jumping teams and schools and looking for an answer somewhere else. Well, the answer really was within me. You know, I needed more conversations with Marty Waters to talk it out, you know, to realize that I was, you know, an 18 year old kid and uh, Aaron Swinson was 20, 21 years old. And Aaron Swinson, you know, he had put the time in the weight room and he had put the time into playing a lot, a lot earlier than I did. So the reality is I was just behind in, in my opportunity to, you know, put together a plan that would catch me up. And uh, that started to happen, you know, over the years, sophomore year, junior year, there was slow improvements, but it was just like in high school. You know, it was going back to the, the wisdom that uh, Coach Waters had spoken to me and then figuring out, okay, how do I do that? And how do I, you know, stay motivated by seeing the benchmarks are being achieved? 
on draft day, did you have a lot of excitement? Did you think that you would have got drafted or what was your thought process? Um, I wasn't, I mean, of course, excitement, you know, I, I never dared to dream of the NBA. It's like, here's this, you know, my life story was, here's this young man, you know, born in Ireland, moves to America, plays ice hockey, growth spurt, moves a couple of schools, goes off to Auburn, doesn't work as well as you want, keeps working his tail off. But my agent had me go around and I worked out for a couple of teams and uh, the Milwaukee Bucks had told him, you know what, we, we want to pick him up uh, in the second round. And uh, I kept that news to myself. And uh, then I, I shared it with my parents and, uh, you know, they wanted me to come home and, and we could, you know, celebrate this, this, uh, this moment in time uh, together as a family. And when I got to my house, you know, it was like two news crews were in the backyard, a tent, three kegs of beer, and my dad had called everybody in the neighborhood and it was a frightening experience to me because I knew that the reality was, is there's probably an 80% chance it's not going to happen. And there's a 20% chance it will, but that big 80% kept glaring at me. And I didn't want to be um, in that moment if it didn't with all those people around me. Do you know who the Milwaukee Bucks picked up instead of you? <laughs> yeah. Gerald Honeycutt. You think you were a better player than Gerald? Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think at the time, I think I still had potential. You know, the funny thing is, is with, with people and individuals, you know, you, you think about where you're at in that moment in time and what you can still achieve. And one of the largest conversations or one of the largest topics of conversations for myself was uh, this guy has so much potential because he just started, you know, so uh, Gerald Honeycutt, was an extreme talent, had been playing since he was a kid in ball handling, you know, three point shooting, post ups, all of it. You know, I was 6'11 when I was very athletic. You know, I had, I had one or two post moves in the post, but still a raw talent. So I think, you know, for whatever they needed, they saw him as being someone who could go in right away and, and help them. After the NBA draft, you then went on to play in the Summer League. At the end of the Summer League, you could have been the first Knicks player in franchise history to get a one-year guaranteed contract for an undrafted rookie. Why did you turn that down? Uh, that was a very hard decision. I, um, at, the, at the time, Jeff Van Gundy was the uh was the coach of the knicks and he came up to me and he shared just what you did you know hey you know this is the first time in knicks history that we are prepared to offer you a guaranteed contract to an undrafted rookie and uh everything that he was saying you know all of the the extra pieces didn't really mix didn't really matter to me it was like wow here it is i can actually sign an nba deal and uh i went back to my room at the hotel we were out in LA I went back to the room and, and I was asking my roommate a guy named Robert Rodan you know what did he think and he said Van I, I'd sign that deal right now and so in my mind I was getting closer to signing that deal and then I went to lunch with my agent and uh, my agent's name was named Warren Laguerre and Warren is one of the um I would say one of the most powerful people in the NBA behind the scenes. He represents uh, general managers, assistant general managers, a number of coaches. 
And uh, so when I would go to lunch with them or go to dinner with them, you know, there'd be all types of famous NBA personnel with them. And uh, he, he went to lunch with me that day and he said, hey, look, you can sign that deal with the Knicks. He said, but everybody's talking about your potential. And the reality is, is if you go and you play for the Knicks, you're not going to play that much. You know, there's a gentleman named Patrick Ewing. He's a Hall of Famer. And he's playing the whole time. But if you go over here overseas, you're going to get to invest in yourself and an investment that you keep working and improve on, you know, what you're doing. And it just made too much sense. You know, it was a lot like the conversations I used to have with Coach Waters. So I, I made the decision to, to go overseas. And looking back on it now, do you think that was the right decision? Um, you, I, well, again, it's, I can't, you can't look back from now and say, was it the right decision? Because the decision was made in the moment. My mindset back then was to listen to wisdom and experience. You know, I, I really, yeah, of course, back now I can say I appreciate everything that happened from that moment on. You know, I don't look back and say, damn, I wish I would have joined the Knicks and, and really uh, proved Warren wrong. <laughs> you know, you then went over to Europe and played, played with TAU. Was it very hard? It was a different culture change playing European basketball, different language. Oh, yeah. I wasn't prepared for that. I'm just, I wish I had a, a way to articulate this without a lot of cussing. Um, when I got over there, the language obviously was different, you know, so I'm up in the northern part of Spain, up in the Basque region. And uh, the first thing is when I got there, I, I had no money exchanged. Uh, the team wasn't going to be practicing for two days. It was on some sort of local community holiday where they're just banging drums like all night. I'm sitting there and I have no way of getting any food and I have no phone or anything to contact the team to let them know that I'm just in my apartment and I can't eat. So two days later, when they come to pick me up because everything was closed, I'm starving. I tell them that, you know, I haven't been doing it. They're all sitting there, oh, we're so sorry. And I'm like, what type of organization is this? And when we start practicing, I noticed right away that the two, there's two distinctly different ways in which America plays and my my understanding of Spanish basketball at that time. Um, and the difference really was my mindset of which one I preferred. At that time, I just came out of, you know, the, the dream of playing in the NBA, alley-oop dunks, fast three-pointers, taking people off the dribble, all of that, where Europe was more, or Spain at the time was more five guys working for one good shot. And that really upset me. I mean, I got to the point, Colin, when I was taking the basketball in practice and I was just kicking it into the stands, getting upset with things that we weren't doing. And my teammates were getting very upset with me. And um, it was, it's almost like taking a wild horse and trying to put a saddle on him. I just wouldn't do it. And then um, slowly, slowly it started to, I started to realize that this was a more effective way to play that this was, you know, taking this strategic approach that may not be as entertaining as what I thought was pure basketball over over in America, but it was pure basketball on the side of five people working together and working on their communication and working on their patience to actually do something. And we had a, we had a great season. We went all the way to the finals and lost. It It was, it was the closest I ever came to have so much success 
Um, and it was a it was a big point in my career where I realized how much discipline and effort it took to get to that level. Yeah, but then you did move to Panathinaikos, and you did enjoy great success winning the EuroLeague. Was that the was that the proudest moment of your career? Uh, no, the first the first one was that first year we won the Greek League. I broke down in tears that year. We just we won the Greek League. The next year, we won the Euro League, and that was the largest championship that I ever been a part of. And we won the the Greek League again at the end of the year. So you know there was there was some momentum building uh, to to you know a lot of success in a very short period of time in the, my career then. You then went to Maurice and TAU for your second spell. What did you do in those organizations to gain attention from the Orlando Magic scouting staff? Um, well, I left Marusi and uh, when I came home, uh, I got a call from uh, Tao, you know, the, the first team, and they made an offer. And I called my former point guard from Tao and I asked him, you know, hey, you know, what's what's the condition of the team right now? What's happening? And he had told me that there's a coach here who um, he's uh, autocratic he's righteous. He's, he's a micromanager. He controls everything. He's like, Pat, I, I know you too well. I, I don't think this would be a good, a good fit for you. And I thought, oh, okay. So I got off the phone, contacted my agent. And I said, you know, I talked to uh, Elmer Bennett, former point guard, and, and uh, he said he doesn't fit. So I, I think this is going to be a no. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll call him. And then uh, uh, maybe less than 30 minutes later, he called back and he said, you're not going to believe it, but they've upped the offer. And now we're looking at, you know, a, a salary that I never thought would be, you know, a phone call I'd be on the other end of. And I said, wow, this is amazing. So uh, I thought, you know what, money could fix this. Like maybe I could make it so it'll be okay. You know, set up the apartment a little bit nicer. Da, 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 da. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. Now at the time with my family life, my wife and I, we just had our, our twin boys. So I wasn't thinking of just me or just myself and my wife now. Now I was thinking about myself and my family and the whole situation of going to play. And that's, that's a big side of professional sports that not a lot of the times people will talk about. So I got over there to say, you know, to, to, to shorten the story. When I got over there, uh, this coach and myself didn't get along. And, uh, he didn't get along with a lot of the players too. And a lot of the players were whimpering in the locker room about, you know, the length of practices, the, uh, the injuries, the nagging injuries that were occurring, but he just kept trying to drive them to keep working harder, harder. And he kept telling guys, Hey, we have to suffer. And, uh, I, I've been a part of different organizations and I've been a part of different ways of, uh, coaching and leadership. And, and this was one was just built on fear. And so anyways, I left the team and I came back and I got a call. There's more to the story. I got, I got a call actually when I was in Ireland at my brother's wedding from an Orlando Magic scout. And uh, he had said that he thought this was the perfect time for me to, to try out with the Magic um, because one of their uh, bigs had torn his ACL in preseason. So when I got home, you know, I, I, I pretty much ripped up the contract with uh, Tao Ceramica, gave them back all the signing bonus. I didn't want anything to do, but I gave them back every penny. 
came back over here and then I was invited to uh, go into the veterans camp with the Orlando Magic. And what was your NBA debut like? Starting center, Orlando Magic. Um, I have a photo back here somewhere of my first dunk. It, it, my first points in an NBA game was a dunk. So to to hear my name being called and come out in the starting lineup, it's it, it's it's almost one of those pinch me moments. I'm like, am I am I really in the NBA right now? Do you think it was the right decision putting you center starting off? Uh, good question. Um, I talked to Doc Rivers about it at the end of the season, and uh, he told me he wished he had kind of slowly brought me in to that position. Now, that's something I look back because that wasn't my decision. That was his. And that's something I look back and say, I wish he had done that because I think I started for 12 games. And most people don't know this, but the NBA, um, the, the teams are so powerful that they have all these different sub staffs that are doing a lot of scouting for all these different games that are going on. So by the time 12 games was up, everybody knew my game. So they had scouted me like, you know, this guy shoots a nice 15 foot jump shot. You know, he's going to go into his hook shot with his left hand. Da, 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 da. So around 12, 12 games, nobody was leaving me open, you know, for jump shots. So at that point, you know, the, the production level starts to slow down. And that's where Doc Rivers was like, I got to go with somebody else. Did you find it hard to adjust to the NBA because of that? Yeah, my confidence level sank uh, very fast. Um, you know, in moments that I would make it back in, Tracy McGrady and Mike Miller and those guys would try and talk to me and be like, come on, man, get your confidence back. And it's, it was nice of them to say it, but, you know, it doesn't work like that. Telling you to do something and all of a sudden, oh, okay, thanks. Oh, no, here it is. And did players like Grant Hill and Trace McGrady, did they help you with your game? Um, no, that's a, that's a big difference in the NBA and Europe. In the NBA, uh, you don't really have those type of conversations. You know, the majority of guys are, you know, they see each other on the practice court. They see each other on the game night. But then when they go back to the hotels and they get back to their own town, they're not really hanging out. Um, you know, whereas in Europe, it's a family. You know, you're, you're, you know, you are forced to eat together and you are forced, you know, to do activities. But the funny thing is, is that adversity, even if it, it's uncomfortable, it starts to bring out the best in people. You know, you start to enjoy it more. And I wish that there was more of that in the NBA. And do you think because of that chemistry between everybody in Europe, do you think it makes people better players that you know your game a bit better? Uh, yeah, I think it makes a better team. I don't know if it makes better players, it makes better team. You know, I don't know if it creates yeah. better individual statistics or changes what they're doing, but it does, it does support more of the mission of what a team is looking to accomplish. Right on the second last game day of the 2002-2003 season, you were lucky enough to guard Michael Jordan. What was that like? Uh, kind of a build-up to that story. We played the Wizards four times that season. And uh, the first game that we played them, I remember just looking down the court during warm-ups and seeing Michael Jordan. And just that was like... Uh, an awestruck moment like wow that's that's actually him and uh you know so i don't get in that game don't get in the second don't get in the third 
and I go up to dock on our, you know, on the week before, you know, meeting the wizards for the last game of the season. And I said, Hey, you know, I, I really appreciate it. If we're, you know, if we're, if there's an opportunity to get in and doc said to me, you know, you've never played Michael. And I said, no. And so I wasn't really expecting it, but that was, I think that was their second to last game. And so it's, it's their last home game. So obviously if it's his last home game, the in-house, you know, office is going to take care of all of that, um, um, game event uh, entertainment. So they had invited some of the 50 best players to come. They had this big video uh, farewell for Michael at halftime. So it was a, it was a real buildup. And so then the, uh, you know, towards the end of the game, I think that they were beating us by 18 or 20, you know, Doc Rivers called my name. And so I ran down, uh, you know, went in at the, to check in at half court and Michael it was wizard's ball right there at that point, right by the, um, the check-in table. And so when I checked in, I looked over, you know, to kind of see who I was going in for, who was guarding who. And, uh, I just recognized that every one of my teammates had somebody and I was the closest one to Michael. And so, you know, I mean, I'm here, I'm, I'm within, you know, like a foot of him and I just look over at him, you know, and he's making eye contact with me and he says, it just don't hurt me, big fella. You know, and I say to him, Michael, you're going to do whatever you want to do. And uh, so he inbounds the ball. And, you know, what am I going to do? I, I'm, I'm a professional basketball player. So I start going to work, you know, and I check into him. He gets the ball at the elbow. He makes a pass. They, you know, they get a the shot blocked. We go down the other end. Uh, then I can't remember if we scored or whatever. We come back this way to our end and uh, I had to guard him again. So the crazy thing is, is then they, they blow the horn and he goes out. If that had been the last game, think about that. I would have been the last, last player ever, player ever, ever to have guarded Michael Jordan and kept him scoreless. <laughs> you can still say that you kept him scoreless. Right. But you, were, you were the last person ever to guard him at a home game. Keep that in mind. That's right. Why didn't you sign a second year contract with Orlando? Was it because your confidence went down? Um, no, uh, there was a number of events and conversations, again, going back to what I was sharing about the distinction between Europe and, uh, European basketball and, uh, the NBA. So, you know, there was a couple things that I heard in the locker room with Grant Hill, Horace Grant, uh, Tracy McGrady, uh, the way of playing was a little bit, uh, individualized so there's certain people that are there that are just for scoring some people are there just to set screens and get rebounds and you know it, that's fine it's like you know people have certain specific talents but i i just felt like at that time i didn't flourish um in that situation so when when i talked to doc at the end of the season i said you know he said he actually offered me the opportunity to come back and he said you know he said that he would own that it was his decision to start me early and he wished that he had kept me off he said but you know you're a great player and i think that you could really contribute and i had already made my mind up i said you know doc i appreciate it but i think my best basketball is when i'm playing overseas so um i think i'm going to go back and uh that's when they you know i think they brought in zaza pachulia at the time and so he was drafted and then they signed him because at that point it was either, Hey, are we going to go with Pat? Or are we going to send Zaza back to, you know, to Europe? So I decided to, to go back. Was it hard to go back to Spain with not as much spotlight on you? Um, 
No, I, I think what the hard part is, again, is going back and the leadership in the room. You know, Doc Rivers was phenomenal. You know, I, 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 I like to, I like to really identify, like when I shared with you earlier, like my favorite part of, of the season is when you see the trades or the new contracts, people switching teams, it's kind of the psychology and chemistry of how is that going to work? So, you know, I really appreciated Doc and I thought he was very respectful. Again, he looked to harness everyone's energy and how do we, how do we all move forward to do that? So he, he was a great communicator. When I got back to Spain, I paid, I played for a, a gentleman named Pedro Martinez and Pedro Martinez, um, again, he was an autocratic telling everybody what to do, righteous micromanager who coached people out of fear. And it wasn't too long before I recognized it again. And that's probably the thing that, you know, I had to, I had to swallow and, and realize I'm like, oh no. And it's not to say there aren't coaches like that in the NBA, it's just, there's not a lot of them. And I don't know if even if they can survive in Europe with the way that social media has taken on, you know, a new transparency into locker rooms, into the huddle, into practices, into games. You know, it's very hard for people to hide the fact that if, if they're just not good people, um, then people are going to find out. When you got the call from the Suns, were you kind of shocked as you were heading to the back end of your career and you were going to join a team with the reigning MVP? Did that, all of that ever scare you? Yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. I was actually with the Irish <laughs> national team when I got that call. You know, Warren Laguerre called me up, my agent called me up and he said, hey, the, you know, the Suns want to do a two-year deal with you. And I was like, what? And uh, having the magics, the Orlando magic experience still so fresh in my mind, you know, I had to sit there and go, you know, do I give it a go? Do I give it another go? And I started to think about it, called my wife and I said, you know what, I'm going to do it again because, you know, I am, I'm getting towards the twilight of my career. So, you know, I got that opportunity to do that and it was very exciting. I was looking through your game logs and it showed that you got very limited minutes during your time with the Suns. Did that frustrate you or is that what you expected? Um, it's frustrating. You know, when you're a competitor, you want to compete, you know, and the initial veterans camp that first year, Mike D'Antoni told us, you know, here's a group of 14 men that are put together on a roster and the leader in the room says, hey, I play about a seven-man rotation. And seven of you, you're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to enjoy it. And seven of you, you're going to think I'm an SOB. Now, everybody in the room thinks, well, I'm going to be in the seven that are playing. I'm not kidding around. Every, all 14 guys think that they're going to be part of the seven-man rotation. And then you find out that you're not. And it starts to weigh on you that, you know, this, this guy's not going – to make a change in this. And, you know, it worked for a while. We were winning and uh, we got to the playoffs and then we don't win and nobody is battle ready. And I was vocal about it. You know, that's, that's the one thing that I wouldn't withhold from people is, you know, I'm not going to sit there and paint some sort of, we're great. This is fun. You know, it's, Hey, if our goal is to win, did we win? And we didn't. And the first year, a couple of guys got hurt and then he had to call on some other players and they weren't ready and we didn't make it to the finals. And then the second year, you know, he did it again. 
and uh, the media came up to me. And, and this was at the time where, um, where there was a big play against with the Suns. We were the Suns against the San Antonio Spurs, and Robert Ory had uh, pushed Steve Nash or bumped him into the sideline into the timetable. And then Boris Dion and Amari Stoudemire stepped over the line and they were, um, they weren't allowed to play the next game. And the only active big man on the roster at that time was me. And when the, when the media came up to me, they said, Hey, you know, you, you're going to get your big shot. You know, what did the, what did the team tell you? What did Mike Tony talk to you about? And I told him, I said, he said nothing to me. I said, the last time I played was four months ago and I've gotten no opportunity to, to do anything. So, you know, I'm going to give it my best, but you know, what are you going to do? Did you get along well with Steve Nash, seeing that you could both relate to each other? Same yeah. age, both had kids, both played ice hockey at a young age, didn't start playing basketball up until your early, early teens, and both born outside of the USA. Yeah, I think... Um, it's a lot yeah, in common. I don't think we ever shared any, talked about any of that stuff besides, you know, the kids, family life, you know, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, we got along great. There was, there was many guys that were at that, you know, Brian Grant, was you know at that same um, time in, in his career, Sean Marks, you know, uh, Pytakowski, all these guys. You know, there's a lot of guys that were kind of nearing the twilight of their career, married with kids. So we all got along great. That was a that was a completely different team than the one that was you know in Orlando. Eventually, what made you retire? Was it your body couldn't handle the pace of the game, or was it you just wanted to spend more time with your family? Uh, part of the second. Um, at the, you know, when I was in Poland, my last year, this is my 12th year. I got to the point where this was my second year, second season. Now that the year before I was in Russia, my, my family didn't come with me. Then the year in Poland, my family didn't come with me. And that was really wearing on me. You know, you don't get those moments back with your children, you know, and your wife, your family, you know, so it had to be for good reason that, you know, I would be doing something like that. And so that started weighing in. And the second thing was um, I wasn't getting any butterflies anymore before games. You know, when, when I, when I kind of realized that I wasn't really all that excited about doing it anymore, it wasn't any fun. I was okay with letting go. There was no more real value to it. So um, that, that last year, fortunate enough, we win the Polish championship. Um, I come home uh, just really, you know, kind of took a deep breath, started to kind of look at the big picture. And uh, uh, they called back, they wanted me to sign for the next year, I told them no. And uh, that was really the only phone call that I had at the time. And uh, I just said no. And I told my agent to take my name off, you know, the market. And so then around Christmas, they called me to see if I wanted to finish the second half of the season. And I said no, and then I knew I was done. What was your favorite moment playing for Ireland? Uh, it was a it was a stretch where you know just a lot of my family was around and a part of uh, the games and after the games. Um, you know, I think when uh, any time when you have family and the family support, you know, especially in Ireland, that was that was amazing. I'll, I'll never be able to recreate that again in my life, and uh, that that almost made me look, you know, kind of retrospectively, like, you know, what if, 
what if I had grown up in Ireland? Where would I be? And uh, you still, you think you still would have made it to the NBA? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I had a, I had a very unique road to it. So why not? Do, you know, in, in another place. You know, I, I didn't do it traditionally. You know, I wasn't, you know, a, a basketball gym rat that, you know, in America who went to some ACC school and then, you know, got, got was the lottery pick. I was, you know, I was a kid born in Ireland who moved to America, played ice hockey and, uh, you know, had a rough start in getting into it. So why not, why not having, you know, growing up in Ireland and actually, you know, then at some point, you know, making a jump to America. Ireland's youth ranks are fantastic at the moment for players like Aidan Harrison and Jordan Blunt, Sean Flood, many more. Do you think it's only a matter of time that we can end the Pat Burke search? Yeah, for sure. The, uh, you know, Basketball Ireland has done, I think, a, a phenomenal job of making the, uh, the sport more popular. Um, you know, social media has really changed the face of it too. You know, I can, I can remember when I was in high school visiting Ireland and, uh, you know, going into schoolyards and seeing that some of the goals were at 11 foot, nine foot, 10 foot, six, you know, just there was no standard to it. And what I think has occurred is, you know, as the, uh, you know, social media and culture creates an importance or value to the sport. It allows kids in all, all parts of the world to be a part of that. Whereas, you know, years ago, it was just the television's opportunity to play a game, you know, and if that game was live back then, that would be amazing. If you, if you ever caught, back when I was in high school and I was visiting Ireland, if there was a live NBA game being televised, that would have been amazing. I think because of you playing over in the NBA, I think you have really pushed basketball in Ireland, that there are a lot more clubs opening up, the league's getting bigger, everything, basketball itself is just getting a lot bigger in Ireland. Well, thank you. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, how would I say, I wouldn't associate anything that I've done as creating, you know, that popularity. I, I think it creates a little curiosity. I think most people in Ireland don't realize that there was a, a a person that was born in Ireland made it to the NBA. <laughs> you know, it's sure everyone should just think everyone should just think to themselves like, if you can make it to the NBA, if I can't die. Right? Hey, that's what I did when I saw Marty Collin play for the first time. If that guy can yeah. do it, I can do it. That's what I thought. And then um, when you left the NBA, you did a bit of media work, but how did you realize you wanted to do Hoops Life? Um, I. Uh, you know, I went in to do the, the media. I was doing the radio broadcasting, uh, did a bit of television uh, for the basketball. And while I was, you know, making my road trips back and forth from my house to, to universities, uh, one of my friends in town asked me, do I ever, would I ever like to train kids? And, uh, you know, I had never thought about that. And so uh, a couple kids came into my backyard and we started working on some skills. And, you know, within a month, it was about 20 kids coming to the backyard to work on stuff. And uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I think I, I could really relate in a sense of, you know, here, 
here are these young people who desire to uh, attain a skill level that they don't currently have. And that's where I was when I was playing. I don't know how to do this stuff, but I, I really want to work and learn how to do it because I, I really want to evolve as a player. Um, so I talked to my wife about, you know, this opportunity. And I said, you know, I'd like to make a small investment and, and get a training facility and, and just to give it a go. And, uh, I just like probably everybody when you're when you're starting something new, um, if you haven't done all the research and the planning and that you, you kind of walk in and, and adversity hits you real quick. And that's what happened that first year with that training facility. I knew nothing Colin, about marketing sales, uh, program development, just so many different things, accounting, all of it. And uh, it was very stressful. And Probably the, the biggest stress that I had was I identified that the service I was providing wasn't creating transformation. So I wasn't working with something and then making it better. Or, you know, I was working with kids and I was just telling them, hey, do this and try this and do this. And let's work on that. And then the following time I would meet them, they'd only have about you know 2% of what anything I said. And I started to realize my approach to working with people is flawed. And uh, that's when I, I, I looked to say, well, how, how do I learn how humans learn? How do I look to improve myself in a way in which I have to really research and say, what are you doing that is uh, that is creating an effective approach for uh, transformation. And that's when I started working with a, a leadership team. And uh, I started to realize that I was closer to that first coach that I had in Cleveland than I was who I wanted to be, which was my second coach in high school, Coach Mario Waters. And so uh, I went through a number of different courseworks and classes and uh, I worked with them for about four years. And after having worked with them, I, I asked them, what if we work together in creating um, curriculums that could help children understand this approach? Like, you know, you're the same person you are in your home that you are in your classroom. You're the same person in the classroom that you are on a sports field. Like everything really is, is how do you handle adversity? How do you communicate? How do you respect others? You know, how do you take care of opportunity? And so that's what we did is we started working with kids at a very young age. And when they would join the basketball program, we would start to ask them thought-provoking questions about how do they team and what's an effective way to team. And again, as it goes back to that reality that a very innocent and honest answer uh, in performing leadership was them saying, I don't know. And we would say, we're okay with that. Let's start working together and we'll see what we what we can identify. So through the weeks of these programs, kids would start to say, oh my gosh, I get it. I know what I want to work on, or I, I know what's happening. I can see it here. And we'd start to talk to them and we'd say, okay, so what do you want to do? Well, I want to change that, or I want to make that better. Well, how would we do that? And then we get back to, I don't know again. And we would continually go through this cycle until kids actually started to understand a different approach. And they could identify it in their teachers at school. They could see their teachers were doing things differently. They see their parents doing things at home. They would start to change their habits. And uh, it became a very rewarding experience. We, we ended up making three 12-week programs. And uh, we really changed um, 
you know, the, uh, I'd say the footprint of basketball and leadership in this community. I read that it was 85%. You said in the past interview that it was 85% leadership skills. And I was reading a few reviews for Hoops Life and it was loads of parents saying that you really did help their children with their confidence. Do you think you are changing people's lives with your organization? Yeah, yes, I do. I think that, you know, we, we went through, yeah, we went through a number of different evaluations uh, that would, you know, not, not evaluating the kids or evaluating parents, but evaluating the program. And, uh, you know, parents would come back to us with a lot of insight and feedback of what was happening at school, you know, what was happening at the home. We had children that were hitting, you know, the honor roll uh, for the first time. We had, you know, feedback from children that were changing the way that they were working with their family at the home, you know, whether it was chores or discipline, you know, a number of different things, emotional management. Um, a lot of parents would come up to me you know, physically and emotionally crying, um, telling me that, you know, how are you doing this? Because we know that we're not doing it. And we want to learn how to do it too. And they're were, they were wanting for us to create parent classes to, to go through this approach. Well, thanks very much, Pat, again, for coming on to the podcast. I mean, everyone at St. Coleman just want to wish you the best with Hoops Life and just to continue changing people's lives. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. I hope that uh, this interview went well and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk again soon. Thanks very much. I'd like to say thank you to Pat Burke for joining us on the podcast. and Thank you for listening. Have a very nice day.